Welcome to the 60th episode of The Logan Bartlett Show. I am your host, Logan Bartlett, and what you're going to hear on this episode is something a little different. This is a conversation I've wanted to have for a long time with two of my partners, the senior most investors at our firm, Scott Rainey, as well as Satish Dharmaraj. Scott has been at Redpoint for a long time, making investments in notable companies like Twilio, HashiCorp, and Stripe, among a number of others. Satish is a former entrepreneur, having been backed by both Redpoint and Benchmark. Mark in his last business. He also has made investments in notable companies like Snowflake in the very, very early stages, as well as Zendesk, Sonos, Nextdoor, among a bunch of others. This was a really fun conversation to hear their perspectives on where everything's headed and the ecosystem as it stands, how our partnership works and all of that. So thanks to them for finally coming on. They're both uh, fairly press shy and they haven't done any interviews in a long time. And so took a lot of coaxing to get them on, but a really fun conversation. Before we get to that, please, whatever podcast platform you're listening to this on, give a five-star review if you're enjoying what we're doing, as well as subscribing on YouTube. We're trying to get the, the counts up on both of those. It helps other people discover the podcast. And so that is really appreciated. But without further ado, my partners, Satish and Scott. I want you to know, neither of you guys have much stuff like out there. Neither of you have videos or, or anything. Satish, you have some from like a decade ago that I went back and watched last night. Okay. But like cumulative time that you guys have of uh, things that I could prep, it was like maybe an hour and a half. Hey, so before we start... Um, We've started, so... Uh, if we start with going down further, I'm really concerned here a little bit. Um about your performance. Um, is this this is actually a performance review? Yeah, this, this is, is a- you know, I mean, I see you on Twitter fucking 24 by 7. Yep. I see you with all this podcast. I see you all doing all, all kinds of stuff. stuff. When do you fucking do work? Yeah, like for instance, how many deals have you done in the last 12 months? <clears throat> Zero. Yeah. Yeah. Doesn't you, surprise can, us. Yeah. Does well, not surprise it, us it at depends, all. It depends if you, how you define I deals. wouldn't be able to do any, Scotty, would you be able to, I wouldn't be able to do any deal either if I was doing all yeah, the things I would try to become stuff. a media celebrity. Trying to become a media celebrity, a rock really star. focusing on his job. I, uh, the good news, the good news in that is I think any deal that I would have done over the last year would be marked down significantly. So that's the way I justify isn't it that, myself. Isn't that the case with all the other deals you've done as well? <laughs> that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's not different than two years prior. What's different about that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I I appreciate you guys doing this. I think this is so. This is our new uh, studio thing in our office. Mm-hmm. I like it. We, we were not really nice. using this uh, space, so we actually turned it into something real. But I know I had to begrudgingly kind of pull teeth to get you guys to do this. So, and Satish didn't even realize we were actually recording here today. So. I, I did not. I thought it was a prep meeting and I was going to talk to you about how it's a terrible idea to have me on a podcast. No, it's great. You, 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 all your stuff that I was listening to is super interesting. But I, Satish, I wanted to start. I didn't know there was a bet among Zimbra employees that you weren't actually going to make it in venture. That's correct. Why? So Zimbra was your company you founded. Yeah. So you founded the business when? 2003. 2003, raised money from Redpoint and Benchmark. Benchmark. Yeah, and, and Excel, and Excel, and ultimately sold it when? Uh, two thousand seven for three fifty. Three fifty, and you raised twenty five million bucks, so a good yep. outcome. Yeah, uh, and then you came over and worked here. Yes, and there was a bet among Zimbra employees that you weren't going to last. Yes, uh, in fact, Kevin Harvey, who's one of the founders of Benchmark, was one of the biggest uh, kind of better saying that I won't make it in venture. And why was that? 
because they thought I had no patience for it, that I would think it's a bunch of bullshit and walk away. And the all first of that was true. The, all of those are true, except that he didn't walk away. <laughs> he stuck with it. Yeah. He stuck with yeah. it. Yeah. Well, it is interesting. I mean, you go from, we see CEOs becoming venture investors, and you go from like the ability to have all ownership of everything to having no ownership of like anything with the companies, right? You're right. just like advising it. So right. was that a weird transition for you? It's interesting. For me, the harder transition was not that. Was The harder transition was my own role inside of Redpoint, uh, which is... I um I have this theory that as you as you become better and better in in managing people and trusting people to do their jobs that as the CEO you you say okay I'm going to hire the head of sales and I'm going to trust the head of sales with with her or his respond you know functional areas and as you abstract yourself more and more, the next level of uh, of abstraction is away from being the CEO to like being a board member and 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 then allowing the CEO to do uh, their jobs. But I found it much more difficult inside of Redpoint because there is everything is. And when we came in, uh, when I came in, there was like ten partners, uh, ten MDs, and so everything is a group decision. Yeah. So. Everything from hiring someone to leasing a space or doing an event or, or anything like that or sponsoring an event, everything is like, okay, let's go talk to 10 people and have five people question you versus – so it was more of a challenge internally. Hmm. I'd say that a couple of things on that, though, that are really important to understand is that Satish came on at a period of time when we were in the midst of a transition. We had had our founder group. And um, we were building out the next generation, of which I was one of those folks. This and was 2007? 7, 2008, in yeah. that time frame. Satish joined as one of the next generation I joined 2009, yeah. Nine. Nine, yeah. And, um, uh, you know, it, so we had a big group because we had, like, the previous generation and this upcoming next, next generation. As a result, as you go through that period of time, it actually is pretty challenging because you have a lot of people around the table. And, I, you know, I'm incredibly thankful to our founders for the way that they handled that process and managed it. But so he's come on board was the single most important thing that's ever happened to Redpoint outside of its founding. And it was because he was who he is and because of the experience he had that he helped us basically question everything. And he didn't take uh, status quo. He didn't take the status quo as acceptable. And he basically, in his way, in a way that only he can do it, challenged a lot of our assumptions and helped us step forward. I think if he'd come in and been like, oh, this is all stupid, we need to do it differently, there would have probably been some immunorejection. But Satish is such a lovable character and such a powerful leader that he's able to get everybody to kind of recognize we do need to step forward, we do need to progress. And it was really, um, really fun to watch. It was great for me because I was one of the people who had been on since 2000. And I wasn't able to affect some of those changes because I was the, I'd been the junior person who was kind of growing up into a position. He came on as you know one of the next generation people and was actually able to make that happen. And I'm you know I'm super thankful. The, the the structure of venture firms, as I think about it, there's kind of three models. One is like the the partnership that we have, right? One is kind of the CEO or founder model yeah. that uh, General Catalyst has, and Sequoia has, and Insight has, and whatever. There's generally one leader at the top, and then there's kind of like the distributed PL model to some extent where it's a hold co and then people kind of run their own individual businesses underneath it uh, under a single umbrella the hard part about the partnership model which we have is to your point it's it is hard to make consensus decisions right and you're structured in a way that it's a great place to work but 
doing office space or doing a website or hiring people and sponsoring or deal decisions, deal decisions, all those things. Like, how do you actually make those those decisions? And so, I guess um, what in doing that, like that process and that evolution was uh, obviously there was a transition to a next generation that you you guys were a part of. But in, in did you restructure like how some of those things were actually made from a decisioning standpoint, either investment wise or whatever, all the other stuff wise? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, first couple of years, you know, things were pretty inefficient because we would have 10, 11 people making deal decisions. And honestly, they were suboptimal, as as you would imagine. Just because you go to the lowest common denominator. Yeah, you, yeah. because, you know, uh, we're in the business of taking risk. And every decision you make, you're making with imperfect data, with with a lot of uncertainty around it. And so when you have 10 really, really, really smart people discussing it, it you you make average decisions. And the cynic always sounds smartest, right? Yes, Generally, yes, especially yeah, at yeah. the early yeah, stage. Yeah, yeah. Yep. You, may, you do average deals that everyone is slightly comfortable with versus... And so Scotty and I uh, came up with a structure where we had subgroups. So we had the infrastructure software subgroup that Scotty, me... Uh, John Wilichka and Tim were part of, and then we had the consumer subgroup with which Chris Moore and jo Jeff Brody and Jeff Yang were part of. And so we started making decisions a little bit like what you were talking about in, in Battery, where there's a CEO for subgroup and you make that decision internally. So yeah. I think that helped a lot. That helped on the the investment decisioning Correct. side. What about all the other stuff? You know, I think what ended up happening there too is that we ended up just realizing that we could trust one another. And I think... We, we started to try to encourage people to make decisions, and we would defer in many cases. And so we broke into these little committees in terms of how we think about operating the firm, you know, the, the back office stuff and all those things. And we started to push decisions down to those groups. If it was a really big decision, they'd come to the big group and say, I want to do this. Here's why. And, you know, for the most part, we would just defer. That's kind of still it, how we are today, It's right? exactly like, how. I'll do budget. I'll do founder experience. And yeah, exactly. come back together. And, and this is an out. artifact of that. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's really important. I mean, one of the things that, you know, I had this epiphany at some point with the way that we were managing our firm where we, we, we go to these board meetings with our startups and we tell them you have to be lean, you have to be efficient, you have to be quick and nimble, make fast decisions. Yeah, fire fast, hire fire fast. fast. And then I'd come back to Redpoint and I'd be thinking about how we were managing the firm on a day-to-day -day basis. And it was like being at a Fortune 500 company sometimes it felt like, you know, and so we really needed to rethink that. And that all happened probably in the 2010, 11, 12 time frame, yeah. right? Yeah, where we, we started to try to act like a startup ourselves. And um, we're more like that now than ever. I mean, every year I think we get more and more confidence in our ability to do this. And I think that we're as you know, quick and nimble as we've ever been as a result. And it's really about your know, agency and, and giving everybody the, 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 um, the authority and ability to make decisions. So. One, one thing I give the founding group a lot of credit for, and, and you all as well, as you took more and more of that mantle, though, is there's this, I sort of think about it as the Steve Jobs and the transition to John Scully when you're with Apple. When you're not the founder of something, you can be paralyzed by the desire to drive on the, uh, down the road and not potentially veer right, off, right? right. And to some extent, to be able to continue to change and evolve, you have to be willing to take the autonomy to burn things down or take the risk that you might blow it up, right? And uh, I give the founders a lot of credit uh, for their willingness to step back and not sort of hang over our shoulders with the decisioning. And they, we were with them all yesterday, and they right. did a great job. No, that. They're great at that. In fact, Timmy encourages that, you know, Tim Haley. 
He, Tim Haley, who's been on Netflix's board for whatever, 30 years, 30 and years. one of the founders of the he firm. continues to be on that board and one of the founders and also my board member in, you know, at Zimbra and the comp- and OneBox, the company before then. Um, so I have, a, and he recruited me into Redpoint. Anyway, he, you know, I would go, I would go with him. I would go with all these issues. He would be like, just burn it down. That's your job, you know? So he would encourage that actively. Yeah. yeah. And so, so was that something like as you guys, because uh, I actually don't even really know this transition. So, so 2009, you came in and then over some period of time, there was kind of this like recognition that there was going to be a new generation that sort of took over the two different yeah. groups. And was that sort of how it evolved over time? And you, you both are kind of the, the vestige of that prior group to some extent. If you go around our MD group no one i mean you, that's you're right. the longest and you're the, the ones with the most continuity last two the last two standing yeah. that's right for now yeah, for yeah, now exactly. yeah yeah <laughs> so was that uh was that something that was stated or did it just end up happening that way uh no it was it was uh, definitely something that uh we worked towards it wasn't like it just happened that way um we knew that we were going to do it and scotty and i had a conversation afterwards saying okay let's do a fun together, and then you focus on growth, and I'll focus on early. So it was all explicit. Yeah, yeah. And, and on the uh, investment decisioning process, right, and the growth to early transition. So when did when did you all each start focus? When did you move over to focusing really on early? When Omega Four was raised, Omega right? Four. Okay. Yeah. So that was uh, Omega Three. You were still sort of doing was, both. Yes. So Omega Does everybody 4, know what Omega is? Yeah, I, probably not. We, we right. use this yeah. term all the time. So Omega's our early growth fund that Scott and I are on the team for, along with our partners, Elliot and Jason. And then the early team is is Satish, uh, Annie Kadabi, Alex Bard, and Erica Brescia. Uh, so, so that was an explicit decision that you guys kind of made early on was you were going to divide and conquer in some ways. Yeah, I think for, for a long time, we had operated both those, those, those funds with one single uh, managing director group. But the, in reality, there are a few of us who spent a disproportionate time on the early growth side, and then the rest were spending most of their time on early. And um, that worked well for a while, but at some point when we realized we wanted to make investments to kind of strengthen each of those groups on an, on an individual basis, we recognized that having one big group, it, it started to feel a little bit like yeah. like what it did back in 2009, where we had this, we were having this big group. And, and you know, so we ended up separating the, the um, investment management committees and creating the two separate groups. Satish and I, even after during the middle of that transition, he were he and I had always spent about half and half our time on both, right? And we said we'll do one where we're we're still half and half, but then we're going to transition to where you'll do 100% of yours on early, and you'll and I'll do 100% of my time on early growth, and um, to kind of make that that was the final step in that transition for us, kind of separating the investment management committees. That happened uh, Red Point seven. seven, and that what year was that? Red Point Seven is a twenty eighteen. Twenty eighteen, and then for us, it happened to twenty twenty one. Really, I mean, in practice, well, you started. I guess that was sort it, of it, it was really yeah, but it was really in the course of the previous fund, and obviously, you know, there were you know, Tom and Alan who are partners. Sure. In terms of the uh, the actual investment decisioning and style, like early, you you talk a lot about about. Uh, the the consensus and the weighing down of the decisioning uh, versus we try to be a little bit more consensus driven in our approach. What? Why do you think that works for early and maybe not for us? Yeah, I think uh, early is many in many ways a bet on people and markets versus on you know versus on 
So it's more of an art and not a science. So there's no numbers. There's no, you know, churn numbers and revenue growth and, and KPIs. And so you had to get, make a more gut level decision. Um, a lot of it is based on how amazing you think the founders are. That's a large portion of the bet. And then the second portion of the bet is how big is the market? Um, because obviously we want to, we want to, have home runs, right? Uh, the power law works, and so th- those are the those are the questions we're trying to ask, and that's a little bit more subjective. Yeah, especially on the people side. On the, people the market side. side can be a yeah. little bit more objective, yeah. but yeah. But given given the level of risk that you're taking whenever you do a seed or Series A, you know, getting consensus is really really hard too. Um, and if you are getting consensus, you just have to ask yourself: Are we taking enough risk? Because the the key to success of an early stage venture fund is really embracing the idea that. We're really swinging for the fences. And why do you think consensus works for us at the sort of slightly more growth stage? Yeah, the, the, the thing, before I answer that, I'm going to say the one thing, even with us, ultimately in venture capital, it's about one person in the firm pounding, pounding. the table and saying, I really, really want to be in this company, right? Um, and I think in early stage, if you have one or two people that feel that way, then you know what you have to do is if you've hired that person, they're in a position of, of trust and a senior leader of that firm, you basically need to defer to them. If that's what they want to do, you've hired them to do that. Let them do it. For us, I think in the when you get to early growth, I think that there are some there is some data. And so we need to agree on the fact base, is what I would say. And the consensus I think that we build is really around do we agree on the fact base? What is working, what isn't working? There's always uh, the challenge that we face, which is around you kind of get pushed to the point of indifference on a lot of these deals based on pricing. And it's really about the level of conviction you have about how big this company can be, right? And even there, I think that there's not always consensus in our group, but there's generally a fair amount. But there still needs to be one or two people that say, I think it's going to be really big. And as a result, we should stretch and do it at the price that we need to do it at, right? So um, I think that's there's subtle differences, but I think that that's really what we mean by consensus. Do you think... Uh People and in markets are still what we're investing in, uh, and it's just a slightly different consideration yeah. set of product market and things. I think it's really important the way that we approach what we call early growth, and we always put this modifier early in front of it because yeah, yeah. it's not traditional growth. Series right? B and Series C. For the so most these part. are companies that are just just getting past some level of product market fit. Things are just starting to work, but there's still a ton of work to be done, right? In these companies, and so um, you know, I think that um, we are taking a lot of risk. You know, and I think we're we're embracing more risk than, than a growth fund for sure. And as a result, you know, we have this decision process, which we call consensus, but it's still very much a leap of faith at some level. Um, and um, we have to be comfortable, comfortable taking those risks if we want to deliver the kind of returns that we want to. Because we're trying to that fund deliver early stage venture returns at a, you know, at this early growth stage. Yeah. So. What about partnership dynamics? You guys are uh, close friends, very different. You give each other, uh, I think, an appropriate hard time that, that I certainly get a kick out of. Um, what do you think about shaping different personalities within the group and how you try to make sure you have a different um, composition of types of people and leaders and all that? Yeah. I mean, first of all, Scotty and I, we go back literally 20, 25 years um, because when I, when I, when I started my first company, One Box, and then became an EIR, I was with Scotty at Redpoint. He would never do any work back then, just like now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I know. And uh, you know, uh, that's that's when I, you know, that's when I started realizing what this venture capital job was all about. But, you, you can know, hang out. And I can just hang out. Podcasting. And yeah, exactly. Memes. Yeah. Anyway, so we have like this deep trust that goes 
way beyond uh, uh, with time. And then the second thing is actually respect, right? Uh, you know, we both were have been in the business a long time and I respect his craft and he respect mine. And we have like this complementary skill set. When we're, when we're in the same team, we would always bounce each other off and I, I would bounce, bounce, bounce off. Hey, you know, Scotty's one of the best. He can look at a company and give a great analysis of, you know, hey, here are the here are the problems. I can look at people and do the same, right? Yeah. So, um, so there's that. And so when we when we started hiring people, and uh, obviously the kinds of people you need in early stage is different than the kinds of people you need in in growth. But then we would always consult each other uh, just to the baseline kind of metrics is hey, is this person a good culture fit with this firm uh, and can can challenge and work alongside us in a way that is you know beneficial for the for the fund and the firm um, yeah. so I amplify a couple of things first of all Satish if you were to describe he's an instinctual investor like he knows probably within <laughs> the first five minutes of a meeting whether or not he actually you know will want to invest in this company or not and, I, and we'll know too, by the way, based on the level of qu and questions yeah, he's asking. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like it's it's like that for Satish uh, generally. For me, I'm 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 way more analytical, and and so I will think through things. I'll think through the pros and cons, and and you know my skill set. I think as a result, I really love the early growth stuff because I think that applies. But it was awesome to have this combination where he could be instinctual, like his gut feel on teams and and products and markets, and I could help think through maybe, hey, let's double click on this or double click on that. And it made it, it you know, that skill set is something that I think that together was great, but also it's reflective of the team that we built now, which is that combination of kind of instincts and, you know, people that have been on the front lines of building these businesses as operators, plus folks who have the ability to really think and break down businesses. But you, he said one thing that's important is like what hire for culture. And I think maybe we should define what yeah, we think what that is means. Yeah, what is our culture? Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's like, you know, first of all, Redpoint was founded by a group, three people from two different firms who came together to create Redpoint, and they were all um, friends. And the idea was that they would form a different type of fund, one that would work closely together. It wasn't going to be a collection of individuals going off in a bunch of different directions, but a team that would kind of approach investing and supporting our companies as a group, right? And so what do we look for? We look for people who think that way, right? We think for people who want to be a part of a team, who want to work with others, uh, we look for people that are open and honest and transparent and also can accept that. So we can have very direct conversations um, here at Redpoint about how we feel about companies or decision making or whatever. And we don't have to worry about hurting one another's feelings. We recognize that it's coming from a good place. It's open, honest, there's, there's, but there's, there's trust. And as a result, we can have really productive conversations that way. And then you know, the last thing is we just want to hire really good people, like people that we really respect and like and believe are going to do the right things. And... Um, you know, as a result, when when you do all that, you put it together. What does that mean? It's a it's a lot of fun to be here. It's a lot. Of, it's it's an amazing set of folks who um, we are able to um, have a good time. We I think we take the job very seriously, but we don't take ourselves very seriously. You know, kind of a low ego place like that. As evidenced by Satish's sweatshirt. Exactly. <laughs> as evidenced by everything he does. Yeah, yeah, Satish. And uh, so uh, yeah, that's what's made it such 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 a great place. Yeah, to be. but just one thing as he was talking, I was reminded. 
many, many times, we used to have this office next to each other. I would walk into Scotty's office after a deal meeting and say, your job is to convince me why I shouldn't do this deal. Yeah. And he yeah. saved me many times on that. What, are there any examples of, I, I don't know, Snowflake or an example of like a great success that was the right pairing of the two of you working together on? Is Snowflake the right one? I think Snowflake is the right one, actually. Uh, you it worked know, out. It worked out. <laughs> and it's always great. Hindsight is twenty twenty, right? So it's great now to look back on it after it worked out and say, oh my God, we were geniuses to figure that out. But... Um, you know, uh, I met this deal on on a Wednesday or something like that. And on Thursday, I talked to Scotty and said, "And hey, this is a cloud data warehouse building 100% in the cloud. This is 2012, right? 2013. 13. Mike Spicer from Sutter Hill Spicer had, had, had incubated it. Had incubated it. They, they had come out of Oracle. They had right? come out of Oracle. There were three engineers uh, and the product was still being built. Which is a great stage for us. We want to we want to do deals before the product is built. So the product was still being built, and it's a database product. So it's going to take a long time for it to be built. Then you got to figure out product market fit. So I was talking to Scotty, and we we basically said, "Ah, that's data warehouses are big. They're big, big markets. Cloud that transition is going to happen." Redshift was the fastest and, growing business, and and yes, AWS Scotty had them. had that uh, data uh, that he said, "Hey." From his, you know, he had he had done some work in that area and said Redshift is the fastest growing business instead of Amazon, instead of AWS. And so we're like, okay, that's a great market. Uh, then we just fell in love with the founders. I mean, these 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 three uh, French uh, engineers were like the best. I mean, top class, world class, and they were humble, had a lot of humility, knew what they were talking about had really, really strong opinions that they're not going to succumb to on-prem pressures and only, only build in the cloud. And so we liked all of that. Um, and then we had already moved into the subgroup structure, so we didn't have to convince 10 people. So we had to convince the four of us, John, um, Timmy, Scotty, and I. So we we made a game plan for the weekend and spent the weekend in their in their offices. And, you know, at dinner, we had dinner with them. By the end of dinner, we had taking the deal off the table. Uh, and this was a Sunday night, and they were supposed to have a bunch of partner meetings, right, the next day? Or, yes, yeah. correct. Was uh, <laughs> was that consensus among the group at the time, or was that a controversial one among the subgroup? Among so, the subgroup, it was totally consensual, yeah. uh, consensus. There was consensus. And then among the larger group, at that time, we evolved to a place where we would go and say, hey, this subgroup has decided to do this deal. And everyone would say, okay, send me the deal memo. So, you know... Uh, you, Scotty, now's your chance to make fun of my deal memos. Yeah, they're, you know, they're, it didn't take them long to write it. Let me that way. <laughs> it's a one pager. I'm like, yeah. we should do this deal. Crayon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's like a picture of a database, like, you know, those yeah. the cylindrical things, and then we should do this deal. Yeah. Uh, and so we had a deal memo, and we just said, we're do- hey, this weekend we executed on We verbally agreed to a deal, and it was okay to do that. Uh, yeah. back then. Because the subgroup was signed because up. Because the subgroup had signed up. And there was a lot of consensus on that subgroup. But it wasn't a controversial Yeah, it was not controversial the, at all. The group. I mean, I think it was, the only controversy on that one was that we didn't get to run our normal process so that the full group didn't get a chance to see it before, to it was see done. It before we did it, which was unusual. Yeah. Um, but uh, we all felt that strongly about it. And again, you know, we got to the point where we just were trusting one another to make those kinds of decisions. So. One thing, uh, I, I guess... Peter Fenton, when I when I spoke to him about 
when he made the transition from Excel to Benchmark, uh, I forget, maybe it was Kevin Harvey or someone said, throw out all that prepared mind bullshit. Because uh, that was Excel's thing is like have a prepared mind and come in very prepared in, your, in the way you think about things. And I, I think Battery had a similar culture of like, let's go as deep as we can into individual sectors and make sure we know every single player that exists <laughs> in the space. And I, uh, to some extent, you need to play the game on the field as well and operate with imperfect information and be able to make decisions based on what's yeah. in front of you. Do, do you think, I guess in this case, in the Snowflake case, there were some elements of yeah. you had that data about redshift but at the end of the day you had to make a decision based on what the game was i I think it's really important i mean maybe it's this kind of a cop-out but i would say that you want to be informed right you want to know what's going on in spaces you want to know that redshift is exploding within aws and that you know um, cloud data warehouses have the chance to be a big thing but on the other hand i don't i I always feel like where you, you go where the entrepreneurs are like there's a reason that we're sitting in the seats that we are and and entrepreneurs are out there doing it they're much smarter much more in depth uh, and understanding of the markets and the opportunities. And so we we prepare ourselves in, in having great kind of purview and perspective on different categories and spaces. But in the end, I want to go where they are and where they tell me they're going. I'm you know, At that point in time, I want to have an open, fresh mind and perspective and lean into understanding that as best I can. But uh, look, if I'm sitting there coming up with like, let's go find the companies that are doing this and doing that. There's some VCs who have been very, very successful doing that. But I think for me, it's it's there, there's a, there's a mass of entrepreneurs out there doing amazing things. I'd rather have have them figure out where they want to go and us figure out whether or not we want to go with them. I would say three things. One, he said, you know, entrepreneurs are smart. It doesn't take much to be smarter than Scotty, really. No, you know. So yeah, um, I just want to put it out there. Yeah. Uh, Fenton and Harvey and the story that's interesting. It just brought up my mind. They got to know each other at the Zimbra board. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was interesting. Partway through Zimbra, Harvey hires Fenton. And he well, goes Because Peter was at Excel and yeah. was on your board? Yes. And then Harvey was at Benchmark and on your board. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So they got to know each other at the Zimbra board. And then one day Harvey calls me on a reference and he says, hey, this is going to be awkward. Yeah. <laughs> but who, yeah. who did, uh, did they both stay on the board? Uh, no, so Fenton, uh, Axel had Teresa on the board after um, Fenton left. But uh, back to the ex- experts on Redshift and Snowflake, my big thing with the early stage team is to always say, do expert calls, but don't believe in them. I, I personally don't, I don't, I don't believe in expert calls, to be honest with you. I mean, it's, I think it basically, uh, Scotty's right. I mean, you got to have the info, but insofar as it shakes your conviction, that's that's the so whatever he's deciding the first five minutes of a meeting he doesn't want any data that might <laughs> that's what i'm hearing that is exactly yeah. what you're but, hearing. but i will say i will say like having looked at the is, that <laughs> next round of snowflake we yeah. went and I, I was at battery at the time but we did a ton of work yeah, yeah. right and there you can talk to a lot of people yeah. that said hey this isn't this isn't smart and we had that a recent example uh, yeah. with a company that we ended up investing in the Series C, but at the Series B, we talked to a lot of credible people yeah. that said, hey, we're going to fucking crush that, right? Yeah. And right. to some extent, if you get too close to the insiders, of course they're going to say that, yep. right? It's yeah. like a defensive mechanism. If, if you actually look at this, and I did write slightly more than one page after the crayon thing, I had like two calls that I did. They were both advising us not to do Snowflake. They're like, hey, Redshift is already won, and they're going to run it over. And when Amazon... 
finds a winning horse, they're going to back up their truck and this is going to win. Which was the sentiment for sure. There was a long period of time from like 20, I don't know, 14 to 16 or 17 that was like, hey, you don't compete with Amazon. They're yeah. going to step on your throat technologically. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, you see that reflected in the margins of that business of the early days. The gross margins of Snowflake were really low. I mean, the round that you looked at a battery would have been a really, it was a challenging one to do. Because totally. Negative gross margins. Negative gross margins, not a ton of customers at yeah. some step up in price. That was the one Altimeter ultimately ended yeah. up yeah. doing. Uh, I think that one, that was Iconic, but yeah. No, Iconic was after Altimeter. It was Altimeter, then Iconic. Yeah. Yeah, I, I know because I, 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 I painfully remember. Well, yeah, you yeah. might have been involved with the company. Yeah, yeah. I painfully yeah, yeah. remember each of the Losing to them. Yeah, 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 I remember all the details yeah, yeah. Are, are around that. But um, what about what about pricing deals? Like how uh, at that point, that Snowflake round was 60. 60 pre, we are raising 15. So yeah, that, that was like a ridiculously expensive deal at that point because product is not built. Pre-revenue. Right? Pre-revenue, pre-product. Uh, with three engineers and Mike Spicer is the acting CEO. Uh, but we had a lot of trust in Sutter and Spicer. Sutter and Spicer, the other thing is we go back along, Mike Spicer and I go back along where we were both at Yahoo uh, together. And so we entered the venture business at the same time. You know, we had done pure storage together. And so there was a lot of trust there too. How do you think about pricing deals in general? And obviously it's different between early stage and growth stage, but... It, it's something we we consider price, yeah. right? For sure, you can't not, especially at the stage we're investing in. But we also, this is one of the things I'm trying. Uh, at times, um, I, I'll get caught up in is whether or not something makes sense as a deal, right? Yeah. And at the end of the day, I don't know if any of my investments have been right or wrong based on the deal pricing. And it's something <laughs> that, uh, and again, that's something you can say in a ten-year bull market or whatever we had for a long yeah. time. But how do you think about pricing of investments and like the importance of that? I mean, you've, you've heard me say this a thousand times. And so I'll tell you one more time and you're going to roll your eyes. It's all about, for me, ultimately how big you think a company can be. Like how big the market is, how great the team is, how likely it is that you think that they can be successful. And ultimately then working back from there. So you think it can be a really, really big business then you're going to think about it from like a dollar on dollar basis and, and work back from there in terms of just how far you think it can stretch, which is, you know, the, the exercise that we all have to go through for the, the most exciting companies. I, you know, when we get into a discussion internally about like at some price, you know, if it was 20% less, I think I might be interested. I'm always a little bit like, you know, that feels to me like you're just not that convicted that this is a deal we should do. I've come around on that, by the way, when we saw just how multiples have gone crazy over the last yeah. five years. I, I'm not yeah. even sure what any company should be worth. It was for a long time worth, yeah. uh, you know, 15 times trailing <laughs> revenue was normal. And then it went to 50 times trailing yeah. revenue. Then it went to 100. Now it's back down to 10 or something. Yeah. And it's like, it's so arbitrary, it feels like. But if something turns into Stripe, for example, or Snowflake or whatever it is, like it's going to be okay. Yeah. Regardless of that. Yeah. I mean, think about the Stripe round we did. Um, <clears throat> this is in 2011. This is before yeah. that. We were we um, were one of the co-leads on the Series B Stripe, and that round was 500 pre. And that was, I mean, <laughs> yeah, it was a crazy round. It was a, an incredibly expensive round relative to where they were, and and you know relative to every other and deal. And call was, option. Every other deal that was getting done, and the way that it was structured is we were investing some money up front, and then they had a call for additional capital. It was it their the, option at the same price? But but you know basically they could take more, and 
you know, I was just so convinced. I mean, this, you know, this is one of those meetings where you walk in and I, I got a chance to meet Patrick Collison. And I remember just being completely annoyed in the conversation because at the time, I think he was probably 21, 22. And he was so much more sophisticated and thoughtful and experienced. Back than, to what I was saying before. Than Spotty. I was, yeah. And certainly more than Satish was, for sure. Um, <laughs> that, you know, I was just, and then I met, you know, John as well over at breakfast um, and, and same exact feelings. Like, this is such a special team. And then you think about what they're trying to do and create the, the um, they want to go after facilitating payments on the internet and ultimately how big you think that can be. It was just like, for me, the calculus was never based on what's the multiple and all that stuff. It's like, this is just going to be a really massive business and we should do whatever it takes to get in it. So, What are the characteristics? I mean, you've been a founder, right? As you think about the successful founders you've worked with, what are the characteristics that you've seen in the, like, is there any commonalities between the different types or does it depend on the market or what, what are some of the non-negotiables for you with founders? Well, Definitely depends on the market. Everything has the context of the market behind it. Obviously, we hear about these stories where people pivot from, you know, like Slack is a great sure. example, you're right? But uh, you can't bet on that. Um, so that is the context. Outside of that, um, I would say the biggest thing for me is are the founders able to attract other great people yeah. and hire them and listen to them, you know? Uh, so those are two different things because, you know, if you hire them and you're, you're still holding all, all the strings and you're not, you know, you gotta, you gotta paint the vision, but have to let go of the execution, you know? Um, so I think that's, that's what, when we talk about people and, you know, we bet on people, it's like, Hey, are these people that other people follow? That's the big question. Yeah. What, what do you think? Like, what are you looking for? Are there, it's a, it, I would say the, the same things for sure. I think that uh, it's hard, you know, I get this question all the time and I, I don't know, I know when I see it a little bit, it's like you just people that are kind of um, founders that are um, inclined to action, inclined to get things done, um, ability to recruit great teams, the ability to listen, you know, kind of willingness to listen, uh, those kinds of things, insatiable uh, appetite for knowledge, folks that are, you know, some of the best uh, founders that I've worked with are people obviously have never, many of them have never been CEOs before. And it's like every time I get together with them, they've read another book on leadership. You know, it's like they're, they, they just are. There's innate. that iterative learning element of it. That exactly. It, and, and it manifests itself. Ideally, you're, you're, you're seeing it in other ways that they're reading books and continuing to get better, but also yeah. you're seeing it manifested in ways that they don't touch the same stove over and over again. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And, you know, I think that the, 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 the founders that I've, that I've worked with that have had the toughest time are the people that are a little static. You know, they, they just don't, it doesn't feel like they're growing as much as they might need to, to grow into that position. And so obviously our job then is to really try to help them grow. But, um, you know, the ones that, that seem to just understand that their job is about every, every month, their job is different than it was the month before. So they have to evolve and change are the ones that end up being the most successful. By the way, I don't believe in books on leadership. Yeah. You don't? No. You can't read. So that's yeah, the, yeah. That's is that the, the problem? There's that problem. There's yeah, that yeah, problem. Yeah. I can't so read. The, you don't believe in books in leadership? No. You think that leadership is purely like an innate thing? It's a DNA thing. Yeah, yeah interesting. This is you it's, can, back to, it's back to the instincts. I know. You, you, either, you either have leadership instincts or you don't. You like, can become a better manager by reading books. Okay, but well that's maybe. But you what can we're talking become about a better here. leader. Maybe that's what we're talking about here. Maybe it's yeah, books yeah, on yeah. management. Books yeah, on, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can you can learn to manage people better and all that, but I don't think leadership is that. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah. 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 What about uh, like I mean, Jack Welch is like a great manager. 
But like Martin Luther King is a great leader. Interesting. Fascinating. Yeah, I don't know if those guys. Yeah, I don't understand. Put yeah, yeah, I kind of yeah. get what he's saying. Of Jack Welch is like he did a good job managing GE. Yeah, for a I mean, long yeah, time, you look but... at your ops and KPIs and all that but stuff. You're saying and... he wasn't a great leader. I don't think he's a great. I yeah he, okay. Uh, the, the... He yeah I I would say he's not a great leader. Okay. Uh, what would it. MLK have done with GE? That's <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, that's yeah, what yeah. that's what we yeah, really yeah. need to be answering. Okay. What about uh, staying? relevant in the industry you guys are both obviously dinosaurs but you've continued to stay mm -hmm, uh mm -hmm. relevant in the new trends and all of that yes. people will say this is a young man's game and so that's maybe why you're dressed the way you are yeah but yeah i uh how have you how have you been able to like stay up on new trends and not actually you know calcify in what you learned i just tweet a lot blog a lot you know go on podcasts mm -hmm. and just be relevant that that's way. the best way to learn that's actually. the best way that's what learn. i found Actually, this, the business is interesting as you are as you stay in it for a long time and you work with a lot of different entrepreneurs and a lot of different management teams, right? I think then you build a reputation, good or bad, and then that basically flows around, and that's how you become relevant. You know, you're you're talking to entrepreneurs, and they come to you, and they they ask you. I mean, like just this morning, there was a deal that we did. I don't know, five six years ago. And those guys are starting a new generative AI company and they're like, hey, we wanted to call you guys first because we had a great, you know, experience working with you. So there's that. Obviously, we, you know, we're in the business, so we read a lot. And we hire hire young people who yeah. who keep us honest and Just keep ride, us in ride the flow. Your yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. But you're right. This is not, this is a young person's uh, game. I just think it's back to what we talked about. It's about having, being curious and, you know, constantly wanting to learn and grow. And I think you know, many of the most successful venture capitalists are people that have done the same thing we just described about founders is that they're never getting pigeonholed in one place. They're always kind of thinking about what's next and what's next. And I, you know, I still get a real kick out of um, when, we, when we're finding a new area that we're excited about and really diving in and really trying to understand and learn as much as I can about that and meet as many entrepreneurs in that space as I can. I still get a, a real kick out of that. And uh, um, yeah, and I think one of the things though is I don't think that... Uh, the way that I went about building my venture capital career, I don't think that could be done again in this age. Because I, I, you've talked about me not being on podcasts, et cetera. I've never been interested in building a personal brand at all. I've actually always felt like at some level it was, um, you know, I really, I always wanted to be in the background because I, I, I think the founders and the entrepreneurs are the ones that we should be celebrating, right? Um, but I think, you know, it's gotten to the point now where in so many cases where to build a career in venture, you really do have to build a personal brand because there's so much noise in this space that to get an entrepreneur to spend time with you, they have to understand who you are. Yeah, right? it's interesting when people ask, like, how did you get into the industry? That's my version of this. And I'm like, oh, listen, I can tell you the story, but it's not particularly relevant. Like those doors don't exist. Those doors yeah. are all shut and they've yeah. been shut and they've been cemented over and they no longer look the exact way I did it. And you're going to have to find there's there's much uh, different paths that you can get in. Yeah. And people are much more accessible via, I don't know, tweeting or DMs or, or emails or podcasts or whatever it is. Like there's much more knowledge out there, but yeah. it's not going to be the same way that that you got in, that you got in, that I, I look at the you know the people we hire now and and you know the the way that they approach you know building building their brands their yeah. brands it's it's you know it's important to do now it's just it 
different than what it was like now. I'm just sitting here getting so scared. I was just wondering, I was just imagining how scary it would have been if you had to build your personal brand on the internet and everyone knew who you were. I know. Maybe part of the reason I didn't do it is because they didn't want people to know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, There's literally like nine minutes of Scott Rainey uh, like on podcasts or videos out there. So we've now like tripled the amount of time of Scott Rainey out there. And the reason I'm here, it's because you're sitting there. I know, I know, I know. I appreciate appreciate you doing that. Another, I guess, thing that was enticing for me in coming over was it does have a uh the the management company structure and how each entity set up is different than a lot of firms right and so uh we talked about the different structures between the partnership and the ceo model and the pnl model uh we have a pretty clean and different structure than i think most uh have and i i think a lot of that credit goes back to the founding group to set Absolutely. it up that way but uh, satish do you want to talk a little bit about how we're actually structured yeah i mean i think uh again a lot of a lot of the credit goes back to the founders but the way the way we are structured well the best way to explain this is the way most venture capital firms are structured is there's a management company and each fund pays a tax to the management company in terms of carry. Um, but we don't have that. Uh, we, you can think of us as, especially where the carry flows, each fund has its own carry. So uh, there is no tax that you pay for to the founders or, the, or other retired GPs. Uh, in terms of carry every fund. There's usually uh, other firms will have multiple levels and yes. uh, they'll say, hey, the founders get grandfathered into the economics over time. Or yes. they say, hey, the, the- 20% of the carry goes to the management company. The man- and the management company is owned by the founders or something like that. Here, two things. One is 100% of the carry flows to the fund managers. And second- Equally important is that we're an equal partnership. Where if you're an MD in the in the fund, you're a GP in the fund, then you get you make as much money as the next GP next to you. That brings the team dynamic, which is part of our culture, uh, into play. Right. Before we retire, you and I ought to think about forming a management company here. I know. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So, so some people can, sell the so management can, company. Yeah. You guys yeah, let's do that, Scotty. Yeah, 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 yeah. You can monetize so it. Sell whenever Logan it. stops tweeting and yeah. podcasting. I'd and love stuff. Logan to have to send me a tax. Oh, that would be amazing. Like, yeah. Be awesome. Why is that important? It's important because basically, as we talked about, being able to operate nimbly as an organization, this allows us to do that. Every fund is a separate company. Like, are you literally restart red point over every time we raise a fund the economics are reallocated and it means we can hire people in um, and they're not paying a tax um, but also um, it, it allows us to kind of change on a dime if we want to completely rethink the way that we operate we can completely rethink the way that we operate and we do that you know we every fund we raise we one of the first things we do is we sit down and say okay what do we want to do differently this time and in fact we bring people on and I think you could probably saw this in your experience I mean the expectation not just as that you're going to have a voice. Our expectation is you're going to change it in some way, you know. And if you're not, then that's a that's a problem. So um, I, I love it, it. I love that we kind of embrace that. I love that's who we are. Um, when I retire, I'm going to wish that we'd done it differently. But I uh, uh, I think it's really important. I think it's what's going to allow it's allowed Redpoint to kind of make it through a generational transition and what is going to allow Redpoint to thrive going forward. You can't just bitch about uh, stuff because you actually have to, you have the power to change things, right? Yeah. And so you can't just say- You can't oh, be a these, whiner. Yeah, yeah, you can't be a whiner about it. It's like, well, go fix it. If you have a problem with it, uh, go yeah. do it. So and, what are you going to do about it? That's, yeah. that's, uh, when, that's basically what happens every time somebody raises an issue. The, the question back to them is, what are you going to do? You're equally empowered. You're equally economically incentivized. So what, what are you going to do about it? Yeah. yeah. 
It's a uh, and it's one of those things that you think you want, and then you realize how much (laughs) how much work it is to you know. It's a lot easier just to complain about things and not be able to enact change, but it is yeah, it's empowering and unique. I do think the trends and stuff is an interesting component of it, right? And one of the things I've my entire career in venture has been mostly riding one ish trend, which is cloud and software by and large, right? That's sort of the entirety of it, and uh, it's gotten. I mean that that trend to some extent we. It became mainstream in 14, 15, 16, probably, like prior to the Snowflake investment. But along that way, it started to become pretty consensus. And now we're getting to the outer edges of like just playing the same hits over and over again. Right. (laughs) And so I've been hoping and I think people have been hoping that there would be a new trend. And to some extent, we tried to force feed uh, crypto as an industry down people's throats of like, hey, here's the new thing out there. And we'll (laughs) see. Be careful how you define we. Yeah, there, well, yeah. we we as an industry, yeah, not we yeah. as in Redpoint necessarily, but we as an industry try to do that. We've talked about those those trends though from a from a perspective. You guys have seen the internet thing happen, the yeah. mobile thing happen, the cloud thing happen, and now this AI one. Uh, and then you've seen the failed ones, the bots and the uh, crypto. I mean, I don't know if we want to call that failed just yet, but uh, uh, what are the some of the other ones that have popped up? Scotty has seen the abacus happen. What is yeah, the abacus? The abacus. Yeah, you don't want to know what an abacus is. It's how we used to add before calculators. Yeah. <laughs> all those, yeah. all those really old trends. Where do you think? Uh, I mean, where does your optimism sit on the AI stuff that we're seeing today? Kind of pop out. Really, really high. But I think it's going to be, it's going to be like mobile, right? Which is everything is a mobile deal. Uh, when mobile first started, it was like, oh my god, mobile is going to be this, but mobile came into everything and then data happened oh my god data you know data data startups but all decisions are now driven by data um and i think generative ai is going to be the same thing which is every company will have some component of generative ai so first of all it's going to become you know it's going to be part of every deal that everyone does uh, and penetrate every industry but is it going to be completely a new shift in everything that we imagine to have been true last year is completely changed now. Absolutely, yes. I think it's mind blowing. I mean, if you if you saw the thirty minute GPT four demo yesterday, it's it's just mind blowing. Things are going to be so different. I can't. We can't even imagine it. So I think by mobile, what you're saying is like when when two thousand seven two thousand eight happened, I became a mobile VC, and what that meant was like new companies basically he left his office. You're trying, exactly. New companies that, that were being Started built walking. from the ground up trying to take advantage of mobile data, right? And then the open platforms like like the iPhone. And, um, uh, and you know, we, we a whole bunch of companies were invested at that point in time that were kind of mobile-centric. And then before you know it, though, every existing company started introducing mobile as a part of it and it became an ingredient. But the reality is, you know, and I've, I've heard that analogy played out. I've used it a lot of times. But now if we look back, mobile really did create a whole bunch of native new applications that were specific, you know, um, and it happened specifically because of mobile. Um, and I believe the same thing is going to happen with AI. What do you put on that, like uh, Instagram, Instagram and, uh, and uh, WhatsApp and Uber and Airbnb? Uh, and- exactly. And we can go down the list. I mean, you know, um, but all those things were created because of, Mobile, they weren't an outgrowth of, they weren't incumbent companies adding mobile, right? They, they happened because somebody looked at it and said, mobile is different enough that I can create an experience that isn't just an extension of something that's already happening, yeah. right? Um, and I believe the same thing's going to happen with AI. 
And I, I believe AI is as big as the mobile wave um, for sure in terms of what it's going to mean for value creation for founders um, and companies here over the next, hopefully it's, you know, 10, 15 years um, in the same way that mobile's kind of powered a lot of, a lot of value creation. And I think that, you know, we're seeing all our companies add um, calls to OpenAI or ChatGPT or, or to GPT-3 or 4 or whatever. We're going to see all those things are going to be integrated into products to actually allow them to take advantage of this. But I also believe that there's going to be, at some point, people are going to sit down and say, the way that we think about enterprise application software, maybe we need to rethink it from the ground up and start all over again, um, recognizing that um, AI is going to allow us to think very differently about what these experiences can be like for end users. And um, I'm, I'm excited about because because I think that the if you think about cloud really started about 2007, 2008 when it really accelerated. AWS was a real uh, a driver of that. But then, you know, that's when Salesforce and others started to demonstrate, hey, this people are going to consume, enterprises will consume cloud-based applications. Mobile happened at about the same time. For 15 years, we've been investing off of those waves. You know, even the data stuff we're doing is really an outgrowth of the move to the cloud. Right. And it was getting harder and harder for us to find things that we felt like had a lot of running room that could be had unbounded upside because those themes had, were, were, they were starting to get a little bit long in the tooth. And um, I think AI has the ability to be this thing that is the wind in our sails here for, for a long period of time. Yeah, that's the way I've sort of uh, thought is that the Internet changed every business, like totally. It changed uh, the venture capital business quite literally. We had to have a website, right? And it changed restaurants around yeah. the corner. Yeah. And, and this feels closer to mobile in the sense that maybe it's uh, – and the equity value created there was tons of net new stuff. Yeah. Mobile uh, – didn't change every single business, right? We didn't need a mobile app in the same way. It changes how we operate internally, but not how we necessarily go to market yeah. as Redpoint. But it did create a lot of independent equity value. It also created a bunch to the you know, yeah. the big incumbents as well. But it's uh, it's interesting to hear how many people are that were cynical of crypto are now optimistic of yeah. of AI. I just well, so you can see real world applications yeah. right in front of you. Um, and the ability to kind of monetize. And I do think mobiles, I think what's happened is the iPhone has just plopped in everybody's lap over the last couple of months, right? It's just, it's literally that big of an event. If you think back when the iPhone was introduced, that's just kind of fallen in everyone's lap here. And now, um, you know, we've got this blank canvas to think about what we do with it. And it's going to be really exciting to yeah, see. Not, not just that, if you, with, with, with ChatGPT, you can go to any other person and explain what it is and show them a demo and they get it yeah. and they can go explain it to someone else. You could never do that with crypto. And how do you think he's writing his deal memos now? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> now they've gotten a lot better. It, yeah, that was, I mean, honestly, like they're, they're now a page and a half long. That's <laughs> really interesting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And he's got like really real, real graphics and drawings in there now. It's really amazing. Excellent. What about the fun, mid journey, baby? What, what about the, the fun dynamics like in the industry as well? So now we have these big trends and we've seen funds grow. I mean, you got you joined Redpoint in 2000, 2000. 2000. So you saw the tail end of funds growing. Yeah. Was that the peak of the? Yeah, I, I joined the venture capital industry the day the Nasdaq peaked. Okay, so and it took and another fifteen. Ever years since or Scotty joined, I know. <laughs> well, it came back. There were there were yeah, five yeah, years, yeah. whatever, twenty sixteen to twenty twenty one, that I kept going up, and then yeah, and then yeah. I, and then I started going back down yeah. again. But uh, we we we've had a proliferation of funds. We've had a proliferation of tourists kind of entering the industry. We've had the solo VCs and all of yeah. that stuff. Uh, now it feels like we're going back 
the other way a little bit. But we've we've generally tried to stay smaller than certainly our peers that have been around for as long of time and with some of the same companies that we're in as well. How do you guys think about uh, fund composition and the state of the industry now? Yeah, I think a lot of it, honestly, is institutional knowledge and history that I, I frankly benefited from. I think uh, during the dot-com days, we, we Redpoint, you know, raised all these big funds and realized that, hey, that's that's not how we make a great multiple on funds. And what we really want to focus on is a multiple on the fund. And if you want to make a 10x fund or a 15x fund, you know, you got to have a small-sized fund, not a big-sized fund. And I think that institutional knowledge has been hammered into our heads from the dot-com days that, you know, that, and which then I inherited. And, and so we always think about it from, hey, fund-on-fund multiples. The math just doesn't work when you have that big a fund to create a 10x fund or, a, you know, outlier funds. Yeah. Yeah, and I'll put a fine point. I mean, the last three to four years, we've seen a lot of really gross behavior. You know, just these massive funds being raised and people investing in over the course of a year, clearly chasing FOMO, enabling, you know, a lot of bad behavior. Frankly, you know, I, you know, it's hard to, for me to sit here and say, hey, giving founders a lot of money at high valuation is a bad thing. But the bottom line is I think we're seeing that it wasn't a great thing for these companies right now. A lot of companies are having to go back and actually think about how we really build the business and make sure we're building a good business, one that'll has the ability to be efficient, uh, where we can't just use money to kind of plaster over all the things that everybody has to do when you go through building companies. So, um, you know, I worry about the industry, you know, I worry about all that money sitting out there. A lot of it still is. We still have a lot of folks out there that I don't think think about the long game um, as investors who are, I think, focused very much on trying to make a quick buck and not really about company building, but really about how do I, how do I, put as much money to work in a shorter period of time to generate as big a return as I can. And, and um, you know, I certainly hope that what happens over the next few years is a lot of that goes away. I certainly don't want to get to the point where companies can't raise the money they need to be successful. But I, I'd i like us to get to the point where, you know, the dynamics in this industry are one that are really focused on, let's build really great companies and everything else will work out from there. We gave money back, right, in Redpoint 2. Excel did, Battery did. There was a handful of firms that did as well. Do you think that's something we're going to see or people? We already did see it, right? I guess Founders Fund did the cut over. Yeah. Yeah. They shortened their early stage. Uh, The exact way they did it, I think, was they had raised like 1.9 or something, and then they they said we're going to cut it actually at 900 and then roll over that next billion to the next fund in some way. So it was a little different, but similar idea. It might happen. It might happen. I don't think it'll happen quickly. I think part of the problems is these firms hire a lot of people, have an expense structure that makes it difficult to do that um, right out of the gate. And, um, you know, I've heard stories on the opposite side. And I think we've talked about this with where, where people post the market correction uh, firms going out, raising really, really big funds, very, very large funds, not having, not getting all the way to this massive target they had. And instead of saying, we've got a really big fund now that looks great and we're going to be able to deliver a really good return, we're going to keep fighting until we get that extra billion dollars into <laughs> our fund because we every fund needs to be bigger than last because that's the way that we operate. And I think that is such a distorted way of looking at the world. I think it's such a cynical way of thinking about our industry and about what we're trying to do here. And, um, I think it's like I think it's greed, honestly, greed and ego, personally. 
So that's the the element of the industry as it stands with these big funds and the deals and all that. I, I do think the pendulum swung back from uh, we've seen founders had all the power in all these rounds, right, where they were getting multiple term sheets. And uh, now it's a little bit more of a healthy balance where uh, for the most part, people aren't giving large secondaries to founders to try to get into deals and all that. We did, I guess we're recording this uh, a week after all the SVB stuff played out, right? What about the implications for either with regard to how different people acted in sort of a zero sum way, maybe on Thursday of pulling money out or how different people acted very publicly in what might have been somewhat inciting of other other bank runs that we potentially saw on uh, social media over the weekend. I know you guys don't spend as much time on social media as I do, but I will say the the sentiment on venture capital, it feels like kind of took a, a... a lot of political goodwill was spent over the course of the weekend, right? And I think there's been a lot of good work that the industry's done uh, that we haven't done maybe as good of a job as we should have of getting the message out of things like Moderna and how big of an impactful institution that was yes. over the course of the last couple yes. of years. Or some of these other, I mean, Zoom, quite literally, like yes. venture back startup changed the way we process the, the and pandemic. saved us during the pandemic saved yeah. us during the pandemic and so I, I think there's some branding issues that exist with venture capital and 100%. i i do feel that we're moving in a direction if we don't figure out how to uh push back that there's this social like pariah someone someone wrote an article calling vcs parasites uh that was run the <laughs> other day and uh recommending euthanasia which i uh uh, I, I'm told was a, uh, a Keynes economist reference and not a uh, actually recommending. Death I think he was really talking mostly about VCs that do a lot of tweeting and me. Yeah, that's right. I think honestly, <laughs> specifically me, especially. Yeah. But uh, what do you think about that? I mean, we're in more of the spotlight than we've ever been. And yeah. we're, we've obviously embraced it in different ways. You guys less so than I. But. We have done a really, really poor job so far um, of bringing out all the good things that tech and venture capital and innovation and entrepreneurship, jobs. I mean, like if you're an Uber driver or DoorDash driver or Instacart delivery, you know, you're so many hourly jobs. All of them are powered by by the innovation that happens in the Valley. And we realized we have no friends on the left, no friends on the right. You know, we're, we are a prior and we got to do a better job of uh, of blowing our own trumpets a little bit and talking about the values that we we bring and the value that we bring um, better and, and honestly have better connections in D.C. and things like that, which we didn't have. And uh, a band of VCs came together, as you know, and we started tweeting together and uh, and a lot of great firms, uh, um, uh, GPs from a lot of great firms. And one of the things that we're thinking about is, hey, how do we how do we affect this this thing that you're talking about? And how how could we be better understood, honestly? And it's not just venture too, right? I mean, to yeah, some extent, like Elon Musk or whatever, some of the big personalities in yeah. tech uh, can come across as assholes. Well, yeah. I think that's one of the things I was just going to say is I... I I hope part of what happens here is that we, we as an industry take a step back and make sure that we're behaving in a way that actually warrants us being given the benefit of the doubt. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that we always do. So I think there's hopefully a little bit of introspection that happens post this too to help us understand how to, 
how to make sure that we we can rebuild the political capital that I think that this industry deserves. I don't not just venture capital. I mean, I think when we talk about VC, I, I mean, really what we're here to do is to help these founders and these entrepreneurs succeed, right? And um, if we're not here, that the, it's very difficult. If venture capital doesn't exist, it's very ten- difficult for that innovation to happen. But that's ultimately what we're in the job of doing. And I think, you know, as long as we don't lose sight of the fact that really our job is to make them successful, then I think we're going to be in good shape. So I have a question for you. Yeah, give it to me. All right. So you're, you're of a different generation than the two of us. I'm curious how you think the differences between the way that you see the venture ecosystem, you see the future of venture capital, and maybe the way that Satish and I see it from our standpoint. Do you, do you think that there's a, do you think, do you think it's different? Do you see it differently? I think that a lot of the trends that we saw over the course of 2020 and 2021, there was, uh, I mean, we saw when we talked to RLPs or talked to people in the ecosystem, there was clearly this mindset that we were shifting to uh, a haves and have nots. And you needed to get big and you needed to have a single platform and a whole bunch of services. And I think it was kind of Andreessen Horowitz kind of led this one end of the spectrum, right? Or you needed to be really small and really specialized on the other end of the spectrum. And when you haven't been in the industry as long as you all had been and you just hear that from everyone, it makes sense, right? Like that's the way the banks played out. That's the way... Uh, uh, you know, agency, Hollywood agencies played out. And it makes sense that that is a way that things kind of polarize in some ways. Um, and so I, I think you, I, I always had in the back of my head, well, maybe that's right. Like maybe that we should uh, move in one of those two directions, either get bigger or get smaller. Uh, and left to my own devices, I wonder if I would have been as disciplined in our approach or what made us special. Uh, and would I have chased that shiny object a little bit more? I think now it's become obvious that uh, that isn't the case or isn't the case in the near term. And so I appreciate you guys keeping uh, me and us in line and like uh, consistent with our knitting around time diversification and um, moderate fund sizes in the grand scheme of things compared to other people. So I, I think all of that uh, is is something that I, I don't know if I ever went full on in, in that direction that I actually truly believed it, but it was always rattling around in my head. And I think both of you kind of kept me consistent or, or kept me uh, from jumping further in that direction, uh, in that line of thinking. Otherwise, I, I think there is this element of craftsmanship to the industry that still exists with founders and the ability to work with them and partner with them and that enjoyment of it. And I think we've we've definitely seen more and more finance people just purely get into the industry and having grown up in finance, like I, I certainly recognize that. There is still this artisanal quality of helping founders. And I think that's a real tension that sort of exists within my generation a little bit as how much are we... Uh, partners to founders and helping them shape their business versus pure capitalists. And we're just an earlier stage hedge fund in some ways. And so I think that's a tension that our industry wrestles with in in some ways. And I think we're going to continue to wrestle with the artisanal versus the pure capitalist quality of all of it. And one of the ways I've heard it, I I think uh, Ben Thompson talked about venture capital being an iterative game in a lot of ways, right? In that uh, you're not just solving for the the near term solution uh, to any problem. You're sort of playing an iterative game that 
adds up over time. And so yeah. it doesn't make sense to make a zero sum decision along the way. Uh, I think as more and more finance people have entered the industry, we are seeing more and more zero sum and less iterative game mindset around this. And so I don't know what the big implications for that are, but it yeah. could be, I mean, you're seeing elements of the fee chasing and the all like the industry looks different than it did 10 years ago. And I think it's going to look different in the future, yeah. maybe not for better. Maybe that's some of the things I've alluded to in our conversation today. Like that, I feel like the old guy saying, kid, get off my lawn here. But I do feel like we've moved away. We've lost sight of what we really all are about as an industry, We're really about helping entrepreneurs do amazing things, which is build companies. It's the hardest job in the world. And, and, you know, figuring out how to, how to help them and, and being focused as a group on as that is your primary goal. And it does feel like there's so many people in the industry which have lost sight of that. They really are just about how do I get all this money to work and generate as, as big a return as I can. And, uh, I, I hope, I certainly hope a part of the, the, the outgrowth of what's happened over the last couple of years is we moved to in a direction where, where people get back to, you know, the core fundamentals of like just being focused on helping build great companies. Tell me if I'm wrong, but a lot of the stuff played out in 2000 to 2001, probably similarly, and then it, it retrenched and went back to. Yeah. I mean, there were a lot of like, uh, that, that happened in such a condensed period of time. This happened over, over, you know, there's, yeah, exactly. there was like a 15, your bull run, right? That just kept adding on and adding on. That happened in a relative, you know, from 97 to 2000, 2001, right? And there were a lot of tourists who came in, but didn't have a chance to really kind of infect the industry in the same way. And they, and they, and they definitely left. Um, and, you know, we were back to kind of square one, right? And kind of building up from there. This time, um, since it's happened over a longer period of time, it's, it has changed the industry in a, in a more fundamental way. And, um, you know, I don't think we'll ever get back to where we were. And we probably shouldn't because, you know, we could talk about what's changed in the venture industry over that time. But one of the things that's happened is obviously this is a much bigger industry than it was in the time that, you know, in 2000 when the Internet bubble happened. That felt like it felt like we were the center of the universe. Um, but, it, you know, it's, you could see those stats, like how many of the top 10 most valued companies or tech companies back there. It was maybe one or two. Now it's probably eight or nine. Right. Yeah. And uh the, the industry's grown up. It's definitely matured. It's massive. And as a result, you know, obviously, venture capital is going to change. It's going to evolve uh, with it. But, um, you know, maybe it's changed in ways in some ways. I, I think we need to get back to basics. Logan, I have a question for you. Yeah, give it to me. Who, who, who is your favorite partner at Redpoint? Besides you guys or including you no, guys? No. Just pick yeah. one. Pick one. Including us, yeah, of course. Yeah. It's so hard. How do you pick between how, your mother and your father? How do you how do you you know how do you define favorite? I'll let you guys okay. decide which yeah. one to yeah, use yeah. my mother, you... which one's my father. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're an entrepreneur. You have to pick someone to be on your board. Who are you picking? Come on, come on, man. Gosh, these are the these yeah. are the hard questions that I think yeah. you don't have to answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he, could, he doesn't want to answer here because it would be yeah, Andy yeah. or Eric or yeah, somebody yeah. like yeah, that. Exactly. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, okay, well, who has the best hair? <laughs> well, I yeah. that's me. I right? think that's you. Yeah, 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 I would give that to you for sure. What? What I mean, am I missing? Yeah, dude. Yeah, your eyebrows are amazing. Glistening. So that'll do it for the 60th episode of The Logan Bartlett Show. Thank you to Satish and Scott for finally coming on. Thank you to Rashad and Justin for their efforts with this episode. And thank you, everyone, for listening in. A uh, fun episode to finally do something a little bit different with a look inside our partnership. We, we look forward to seeing everyone back here next week on the 61st episode of The Logan Bartlett Show. Have a good weekend, everyone. Hey.